All right, hi everyone. I'm Nicole Peterson, and I'd like to thank you all for joining us for our SMA Stratcom Academic Alliance Speaker Session entitled Extended Deterrence and Doubt, Possible German Features 2021. I'd also like to thank today's speaker, Dr. David Durando, for taking the time to present today. So before we begin, I have a few quick housekeeping items. We'll be having a virtual Q&A session at the conclusion of the brief, as always. Uh, so during the brief or throughout the Q&A, feel free to submit your questions via the live event Q&A chat. It's a um, two overlapping speech bubbles and one has a question mark. You can also type in your name and affiliation before your question if you're okay with it being recorded. Or if you'd like for your name to be um, anonymous, feel free to select the anonymous option before uh, typing in your question. You can also vote on which questions you'd like to be addressed most by hitting the like button next to that question. So now I'm going to briefly turn the floor over to Ms. Julie McNally from US.com to introduce today's speaker and his topic of focus. So Julie, over to you. Good morning and welcome to another SMA.com Academic Alliance speaker session. Uh, the purpose of the Alliance is to develop a community of interest focused on research and analysis of deterrence, assurance, and associated strategic level national security themes in this rapidly changing multi-domain global threat environment. This speaker series is part of how Academic Alliance encourages collaboration among universities, think tanks, the labs, and DOD. Today, we welcome back to the series Dr. David Durando from Western Carolina University. Um, he earned his doctorate from University of Oxford and teaches modern European military and political history and the history of international relations. He has many articles and books to his name and currently serves as co-editor of the ongoing project SMA U.S. Army TRADOC White Paper on Russia in the Gray Zone. Welcome, David. I look forward to your presentation today. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to thank um, STRATCOM and uh, SMA for allowing me this opportunity. Um, I have uh, several text slides that we'll uh, pay a fair amount of attention to uh, and others which will go through quite rapidly, uh, merely for illustrative purposes. Um, all of you, I'm sure, are aware that uh, we are in a tumultuous of the Atlantic Ocean as regards the political evolution uh, here in the United States, but also across the European Union and NATO. Uh, Germany uh, confronts in the year 2021 uh, several very important state elections uh, and then of course a national election to be held in the, in the fall of the year. Um, at, which time a, a, at which time a new chancellor will be elected. Um, next slide please. Uh, on the epigraphs, of course, the first one is, is perfectly uh, self-evident. Uh, I would like to say just a quick word about the second one. Uh, this is an unsubstantiated attribution uh, to uh, the uh, British statesman and Prime Minister, uh, David Lloyd George. Um, and I've not been able to run it down in terms of his, uh, his biographical material, um, hence my indication that it's an unsubstantiated attribution. I saw it the other day on a, a, a German news feed, um, but it seems appropriate given the fact that Germany is confronting a very, very uh, interesting and perhaps tumultuous set of elections at the state and national level in 2021. Next slide, please. Very good, thank you. Um, we should all be on uh, slide three at this time, um, a rationale for historical context. Uh, it, it seems important to me uh, to uh, bear in mind that that is to say that we should all bear in mind um, that any uh, 
doubt about or opposition to nuclear sharing in Germany as we approach the uh, electoral year 2021 in that country, uh, as you will see shortly, is nothing new. Um, that said, it is also, I think, imperative that one keep in mind the necessity for nuclear sharing uh, in this uh, uh, aspect of transatlantic uh, cooperation. It is uh, certainly the case uh, that Germany and uh, other non-nuclear NATO members in Europe uh, have, since the 1950s, had a vested interest uh, in avoiding uh, what has sometimes been called a nuclear decoupling from the United States. Uh, as, for example, at the time of the two-track dis uh, discussions in the late 70s and early 80s uh, and the deployment of Pershing II, uh, which the German government insisted upon uh, precisely to avoid uh, nuclear decoupling from the United States uh, at the intermediate range uh, forces level. Uh, it is, of course, the case, theoretically speaking, that the European NATO states and the EU states uh, could achieve strategic autonomy. Uh, they have the financial means, they have the industrial means, uh, they have the intellectual uh, wherewithal, and they have the human capital. Uh, at the moment, uh, there is not sufficient will, collective will, among the European states uh, to establish that strategic autonomy. And absent such autonomy, it seems to me that the uh, European NATO states will continue to have a vested interest in uh, nuclear cooperation with the United States. Um, and then finally, I think it's important that we understand that the US and NATO must continue to uh, not only deter in all domains, but to assure or reassure, as the case may be, in all domains. Um, despite the flap in this country over the uh, release of the Nuclear Posture Review in 2018, uh, all of you, I'm sure, recall a, a sort of a press flurry about the NPRs having alluded to the fact that a nuclear response might be appropriate in some circumstances regarding cyber attacks uh, and or hypersonic non-nuclear weapons. Uh, therefore, I think it is important for us to re retain this uh, historical context while avoiding historical determinism. Simply because something happened in Germany or in transatlantic relations before does not mean that, of course, it's going to happen again. Uh, next slide, please. Slide four. Um, I would uh, uh, add a, a minor caveat. Uh, as an historian rather than as a deterrence theory specialist, um, I avoid much of the near theological arcana that comes with deterrence theory. Um, I have often seen in the reading and the work that I do uh, a distinction being made between extended deterrence and nuclear sharing. Um, the, the general definition of extended deterrence that, that one typically sees is the one that I've abbreviated in the first box, and then nuclear sharing, again, of the abbreviated definition in the second box. For the purpose of this discussion and for the purpose of the work that I do as an historian, um, I consider the two to be, if not exactly the same, then certainly overlapping. Uh, I therefore make no distinction in this discussion today between extent nuclear sharing. Uh, that is to say, in my estimation, nuclear sharing is a form of extended deterrence. Uh, but again, that's a minor caveat. Next slide, please. 
of course, Germany's been involved uh, as an integral uh, element in NATO nuclear sharing since the 1950s. Uh, here, of course, is simply an historical snapshot of uh, German nuclear sharing on the ground. This, as I'm sure many of you are aware, is the old dual-capable Lance system, uh, which was eventually discarded throughout NATO. Next slide, please. Um, here we have simply, a, and, uh, for illustrative purposes, German nuclear sharing in the air, past and present. Uh, on the left-hand side of the slide, of course, you see the first uh, German aircraft, which was widely used as a dual-capable aircraft in the nuclear sharing role, uh, the F-84 Thunderstreak. Uh, and on the right-hand side of the slide, of course, you see the current, the, the aircraft currently in use um, in the uh, 33rd uh, Tactical Air Force uh, Wing stationed at the uh, German Air Force Base at Bischo in the uh, state of uh, the Rhineland, uh, Rhineland uh, Palatinate, which is one of the states which is actually going to be having an election in the spring. Uh, next slide, please. Um, the German government, of course, has at least nominally, officially uh, committed uh, to a purchase of uh, FA-18 uh, Super Hornets, uh, to carry on the dual capable aircraft role on the part of the German Air Force for nuclear delivery systems. Um, I was told just the other day by someone who knows quite a lot about this subject that um, uh, in his estimation it's perhaps the case that the F-18 uh, is a stalking horse. Uh, the German government has at least so far as I am aware on the basis of any open source information not committed uh, to buying the F-35 uh, to replace the the tornado. The tornado is supposed to muster out uh, shortly uh, and is to be replaced uh, on an interim basis uh, according to the German government's official position uh, by the F-18. Uh, and then subsequently uh, by circa 2030 um, there should be what is called the future combat air system. Uh, I fear I've just lost my uh, uh, visual. I have, oh there we go, we're back. Okay, so uh, the future combat air system on the right of the slide is, uh, uh, that's a notional uh, uh, illustration, um, which is supposed to take the place eventually of the uh, F-18s uh, in the 20, late 2020s or early 2030s. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, what I find of particular interest as regards the possibility of doubts about nuclear sharing as a result of the German elections of 2021 is that such doubts are nothing new uh, as regards Germany's place in the NATO alliance. Um, there was extreme unease about, about any German rearmament uh, in the western half of Germany uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War precisely because of the Second World War. Um, subsequent to the establishment of the Federal Republic of Germany in 1949, there continued to be both domestic opposition to rearmament of any kind, uh, much less nuclear armament, um, as well as international confusion uh, over uh, Bonn's contribution to what was then supposed to become the European defense community. Uh, and this domestic and international confusion lasted essentially, as you can see, from 1949 to about 1954. Uh, the EDC very famously collapsed as a result of the French National Assembly's no vote. Uh, Germany, of course, subsequently accedes to the NATO alliance in 1955. Um, uh, and that accession and the establishment of
is there, uh, as well as musings about a possible German nuclear capability, um, created quite a bit of unease. Um, the German Minister for Atomic Affairs at the time uh, was uh, the Bavarian politician Franz Josef Strauss. Um, he would lay, he had a very keen interest uh, in uh, nuclear weapons development, uh, possibly even for Germany. Uh, he later on, of course, went on to become the German uh, defense minister. Um, subsequently, in the 1960s, of course, there was the near universal student unrest right across Europe, uh, which took the form of the so-called uh, 1968 movement uh, in Germany. Um, this particular uh, manifestation of unease and opposition uh, to German nuclear sharing and Bundeswehr armament uh, eventually spawned the Green Party, uh, eventually in 1980. Uh, and the Green Party was, of course, in its origins, specifically anti-nuclear, uh, both as regards uh, nuclear power uh, electricity generation, but also, of course, from the Green Party point of view, uh, nuclear weapons of any sort, especially uh, for Germany. And then subsequently, of course, there was massive unrest in Germany at the popular level uh, in the 70s and early 1980s um, over the uh, possibility of intermediate range nuclear force decoupling that I mentioned a few moments ago. Uh, Chancellor Helmut Schmidt, uh, a social democrat, uh, publicly warned uh, that Germany threatened to be uncovered, as it were, from the American strategic nuclear umbrella if intermediate range nuclear forces were not deployed in, in uh, Germany as a result of the SS-20 deployment in the Warsaw Pact. Um, uh, I happened to be living in Germany at the time uh, as a graduate student uh, in, and even in a very, very small, uh, out of the way Bavarian university town, there were massive demonstrations on the streets. Um, so therefore, it might be exhibited over the course of 2021 in Germany uh, regarding Germany's nuclear sharing role is not historically unprecedented. Uh, next slide, please. One of the current uh, political factors, uh, which I think is uh, significantly increasing this unease about uh, nuclear sharing on the part of Germany, um, is the current unease that has arisen as a result of what is perceived to be the beginning of a renewed and uncontrolled arms race. Uh, this particular unease in Germany will, I am sure, uh, be exacerbated by Russian disinformation throughout the campaign January to the end of 2021. Uh, this unease, of course, dates at least as far back uh, as the demise of the ABM Treaty. Uh, it has been significantly increased by the demise of the INF Treaty um, and continues to be roiled um, by unease over the ultimate fate of New START. Um, these particular developments uh, have contributed enormously uh, in my estimation, to uh, the popular uh, angst in Germany uh, about nuclear sharing by Germany within the NATO defense uh, policy. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, there are two interesting further domestic wild cards that I, again, feel quite sure uh, are already being exacerbated by Russian disinformation. Uh, this is not, no secret and I'm sure Russian disinformation will continue to aggravate these particular factors in the 
course of 2021. Uh, one of them is this sort of collection of conspiracy theories which are so present in Germany. Uh, there have been any number of very large demonstrations over the course of the summer in Germany, uh, including in Berlin, as you can see in the illustration on the left-hand side of the slide. Uh, QAnon is, is widely um, uh, known about and followed in Germany, um, as you can see again in the slide. Uh, if you look closely, by the way, interestingly enough, there are two American flags in that demonstration as well. Um, this was a demonstration at the end of which uh, the demonstrators actually sort of stormed the steps of the, the uh, Reichstag building in Berlin, where, where the Bundestag sits. Um, and uh, those carrying American flags were on those steps uh, with QAnon supporters and others wearing, uh, waving, uh, as you can see in this slide, uh, Imperial German flags. Uh, and of course, on the other side of the slide, you see uh, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic in Germany. Uh, Germany currently, as we are speaking, uh, is experiencing a very significant rise in cases, confirmed cases. Um, and as of this morning, uh, the German Chancellor's office, Chancellor Merkel's office, uh, was brooding the possibility of some form of renewed lockdown in Germany, um, which would be extraordinarily unpopular. Uh, and so these wild cards, of course, I think will certainly be um, exacerbated by Russian disinformation over the course of the electoral cycle of 2021. Next slide, please. Uh, here on this slide, you see a re relatively self-explanatory uh, graph uh, of the elections which are scheduled at this time for uh, the course of 2021. Um, from the state elections in Baden-Württemberg and Rhineland-Pfalz, um, yes, uh, Rhineland-Palatinate, which in fact is where the German Air Force Base at Bichel is located uh, in the Rhineland-Palatinate, uh, down to the end of the year when there is supposed to be the national election for a new chancellor. Um, in the German electoral process, uh, the date for the final uh, national election is not yet set, uh, but as you can see, it's supposed to fall within the window uh, between uh, 24 August and 24 October. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the uh, CDU Party Congress, which was supposed to uh, choose uh, a new uh, 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 general secretary of the party or chairman of the party and chancellor candidate for the CDU, has been postponed, or at least there's reports that it's been postponed. Uh, it was supposed to occur on the 3rd of December, as you can see, uh, but news reports overnight from Berlin, though they are confused, are saying that they, this uh, party convention, party congress by the CDU may or in fact may not be postponed until 2021. Um, that itself would be a very interesting development. Uh, next slide, please. Um, this slide is a, simply a graphic depiction of the current composition of the German Bundestag. Um, you can see that this was uh, the status in January 2020, still the case today. Uh, I would point out on this particular slide uh, that if you take all the seats colored in black and all of the seats colored in red, uh, those uh, represent the governing, current national governing coalition between the CDU, CSU, and the SPD. Um, if we take all of those seats out of the graph, what we are left with, of course, are the opposition parties. Interestingly, uh, and here I note with some concern, uh, the largest of the opposition parties is the one indicated by the blue seats on that graph. Uh, namely the AFD, the Alternative for Germany. 
this is a party which ranges from being right-wing populist to avowedly openly neo-fascist. Uh, and this is the largest opposition party in the German Bundestag at this time. Uh, and I'll come back to that particular issue in just a moment. Next slide, please. Given the fact that there is a history in Germany, both before reunification and since reunification, of unease and sometimes actual sort of popular opposition and political opposition to the nuclear sharing mission on the part of Germany, um, are there any fundamental differences which exist today in my, in my view as an historian? I think there are, and on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, these fundamentally new elements could affect, I believe, uh, the outcome of the German discussion about Germany's continued participation in nuclear sharing. Uh, on the U.S. side of the Atlantic, of course, we have, obviously, COVID-19. We also, of course, have within, I think, a week now, uh, our own national election, uh, which, depending on how it turns out in terms of numbers, uh, might lead to uh, a significant period, though I certainly hope not, of uh, civil unrest or uh, uncertainty. We also have on this side of the Atlantic a general breaking down of the foreign policy consensus, which has uh, remained in place for most of the period of the Cold War and for most of the period since the end of the Cold War. Uh, this foreign policy consensus with politics sort of stopping at the water's edge seems to be, at least at this moment historically, a thing of the past, whether it will continue um, after the, the election, uh, however that election turns out, uh, is something, of course, which I cannot predict. Uh, nevertheless, there seems to be an historically um, significant breaking down of this foreign policy consensus on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, there is, of course, also, as I'm sure many people on this call are perfectly well aware, and indeed intensely interested in uh, the growing, uh, I think rapidly growing, uh, Indo-Pacific challenge of China, not only in the Indo-Pacific, but in Europe as well, as it turns out. Um, and then finally, of course, as you can see on that slide, I've mentioned China in Europe. Um, are there fundamental differences in Germany? I think there are, of course, first and foremost, COVID-19. Um, Secondly, we have the factor that uh, Chancellor Merkel has said that she will not stand again for re-election uh, in 2021. Could that theoretically change? And the answer is yes. Uh, is it likely to change? Um, I would think not at this moment, but if politics or if, if a week is a, any, a lifetime in politics, then what must a year be? Uh, so I suppose that many things could happen insofar as her resolution is concerned between now and August of 2021. At this moment, however, she's not supposed to stand for re-election. That means a leadership fight within the CDU, uh, which I alluded to a moment ago regarding the uh, apparent postponement of the, uh, the CDU Party Congress, which will pick not only a new chairman of the party, but also the party's chancellor candidate for the fall. Um, furthermore, will the CDU-CSU be able to easily come to a chancellor candidate? Uh, one interesting wrinkle in this respect is the current minister president of Bavaria, uh, the head of the Christian Social Union, the Bavarian sister party of the CDU, uh, by the name of Marcus Zöder, uh, who is currently polling better than any of the three likely CDU chancellor candidates as of today. Um, he's been 
coy, uh, to say the least, about his own uh, claim to be uh, the chancellor candidate for the CDU-CSU in 2021. Time will tell. The Greens, once again, are a very, very serious contender also uh, for national political office. Uh, and depending on how the state and national elections turn out over the course of 2021, uh, the Green Party could be back in power at the national level with all that that might mean, not only for German energy policy, but even perhaps uh, for the German nuclear sharing role within NATO. Uh, next, we have the very powerful AFD at this moment, the, very, the largest opposition party in the German Bundestag, uh, as well as the smaller but very vocal and very anti-nuclear in all respects party called the Left Party. It is in fact the case that the AFD and uh, the Left Party, Die Linke, are currently suffering uh, internal uh, fractures in their leadership, uh, but depending on how uh, COVID develops, uh, and the German government's response to COVID over the course of 2021, uh, these two parties might well uh, generate uh, significant protest votes in their respective camps, though at an ideological level, the two are at the opposite ends of the spectrum. And then finally, of course, there is historically, uh, uh, I would say historically unprecedented disenchantment uh, in Germany uh, and perhaps elsewhere in Europe also. Uh, regarding the United States uh, and the role of the United States in the world. Uh, significant disenchantment uh, of a type that I have never seen uh, in all the three decades and more that I've been studying modern German history. Um, it is unprecedented at a political level, um, however common it may be from time to time at a popular level. And that I think has been... Uh, next slide, please. I think ultimately the question regarding German nuclear sharing is one of, of, um, of trust uh, on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and of course, the negative corollary of trust is doubt. Uh, and I think finally, the question ultimately becomes who doubts whom more, um, not only between Germany and the United States, but other NATO countries and EU countries uh, and the United States. Uh, I think the year 2021 is going to be a very interesting and perhaps significant period of time uh, regarding Germany's position within NATO, uh, as referenced specifically with the nuclear sharing role. Um, that sort of brings me to an end of my of my formal comments. Uh, next slide, please. Um, here is simply a concluding slide uh, from the uh, former very uh, uh, a renowned uh, nuclear uh, uh, analyst and, and historian and government uh, official, Michael Quinlan, uh, from his book about nuclear weapons. Uh, and then there is, for those who may be interested, a slide uh, next, please, uh, for uh, further reading in the event that anyone uh, wants to pursue the matter further. Um, I realize everyone on this call typically drinks from a fire hose every day, and you may not have time to do extra reading, but if you do, uh, here are some suggestions. Uh, I thank you all very much indeed for your, your time and your attention. All right. Thank you, Dr. Durando. Um, so now we're going to move on to the Q&A portion of the team session. Um, and again, everyone, I apologize for the, the technical issues earlier. It looks like the um, our video is now projecting well and um, audio is coming through. So uh, thank you all for your patience as we sorted out those issues. 
Um, so our first question is going to be from Mr. Todd Beasy from SMA. And after thanking you for your great talk, he, um, he asks, trying to steer clear of a discussion of UB domestic politics, could you comment on how the Germans are viewing the U.S. elections, if at all? And how are the and how the continuation or change in the U.S. administrations might affect many points in your brief? Uh, that's an excellent and very apropos question. Uh, the Germans have been paying enormous attention uh, to the election um, here in the United States. Uh, a poll was released over the weekend, a national poll in Germany, uh, indicating that only 13% of Germans. Uh, are in favor of a uh, continuation in office of the current administration. Um, there is a, a segment of the population which is uh, statistically uh, in, in majority favor of a continuation of the Trump administration, uh, and those are members of and supporters of the AFD in Germany. Uh, that party is a, a relatively small party numerically, um, and those who support it at the level of, of what we would call the grassroots, even if they're not members of the party, uh, it also uh, statistically is a relatively small portion of the population. Um, a similar poll came out regarding uh, uh, business interests in Germany, uh, both US-owned companies and German companies, um, and the polling data on that particular uh, side of the equation also indicates uh, that uh, evidently a, a majority of, of business executives uh, would prefer um, a victory by Mr. Biden as well. Um, there is very keen observation of this election. Um, there is also, I think, a growing recognition that even if Mr. Biden were to win the election, there might well be a continuing mutual disenchantment on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, what I see publicly, and all I see is open source data, uh, indicates that uh, both in the sort of think tank world, but also in academe um, and among the educated sort of uh, business elite in Germany, if you'll allow me that construction, uh, there appears to be a growing realization uh, that there may not be a return to the former uh, quite close kind of uh, emotionally uh, close relationship between Germany and the United States, uh, even if there is a democratic victory in the election. All right, thank you, Dr. Durando. Uh, so our next question comes from Kirk, and after thanking you for your excellent presentation, uh, he said that he was stayed, uh, stationed in the Fowls during the early 80s. Uh, he also asks if you have any thoughts avoiding historical determinism on how NATO considers countering or responding to Russian NSNW uh, non-strategic nuclear weapons developments or deployments which are concerning given their um, given their meaning Russia's operational doctrine. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's certainly the case that historically deterrence uh, theory has told us uh, from the early 1950s, uh, well, strike that, from about the middle of the 1960s, um, that uh, deterrence to be effective has to be variable uh, and must be adaptable um, to whatever uh, sort of threatening technologies uh, might be developed by any adversary. 
remember is the fact that deterrence only works if the other fellow, the other side, whoever that adversary happens to be, uh, one, can be deterred, two, is acting in a rational way, and three, has something that uh, he will not give up. He will not run the risk of having eliminated, whether that's regime survival or political control of the state or whatever it may be. So as these new technologies develop, uh, I, I would certainly presume that deterrence theory, and again, I'm not a deterrence theorist, um, would have to continue to evolve uh, to meet whatever challenges are currently arising, whether those are uh, non-strategic, uh, forgive me, non-nuclear hypersonics or uh, cyber systems or space-based systems or whatever they may be. Uh, I find it very interesting uh, to have learned over the weekend uh, that the German government has committed uh, fully 200 million euros uh, to an expansion of and refurbishing of the base at Bijel, uh, the German Luftwaffe base at Bijel, uh, which of course is where the only squadron in the German Air Force is stationed, which has dual capable aircraft. Uh, 200 million euros is a significant amount of money in the German budget. Um, could that money be rescinded later on by a change of government in the fall of 2021? And the answer is, I suppose so. Um, but the fact that a nominal commitment has been made to replace the Panavia tornado uh, and that a further commitment seems to have been made to significantly refurbish uh, the base at Bicho uh, leads me to think, on the basis of everything that I know at this point, that the nuclear sharing mission will likely continue. Um, but of course, there's always the threat of gray rhinos and more importantly, black swans. Um, which could take everything that I've just said and throw out, out the window. Um, I hope that addresses the question. It's a really good one, uh, uh, and I hope I've answered it. Okay, thank you, Dr. Durando. Uh, so our next question is, what impact will the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline have on Germany's energy policy and its ability to resist Russian coercion? That is a terrifically good question. Um, I have to be involved. But, uh, in another project, um, uh, the uh, NATO Energy Security Analysis Project, um, as part of a, a, a large team. Um, and one of the very things that I've been asked to look at uh, is the historical context for the possible completion of North Stream 2. Uh, it is not yet completed. Uh, though there are only a very, very few kilometers of pipeline left to be laid on the uh, floor of the uh, uh, Baltic Sea to the German coast, that final connection has not yet been made. I would certainly presume that depending on the outcome of the election in this country, that the German government will then decide whether or not to try to finish that project. Um, it should always be borne in mind um, that energy security uh, for any country uh, is a vital national interest. And that is no less the case in Germany than it is in any other European country, whether in NATO or not. The German government has officially committed itself to uh, phasing out all of its nuclear reactors by the, I think, the end of this decade. 
Uh, this was a choice which was made uh, following the Fukushima Daiichi disaster, um, as well as to phase out what is left of Germany's coal-fired electricity energy production. The long-term strategic objective is to achieve uh, uh, energy security through renewable resources. Um, but natural gas is officially seen to be a bridging fuel until that energy objective is, is reached. Um, my concern is the same concern that has been the case literally since the 1980s when I lived in Germany uh, the last time, and that is uh, there was a great deal of concern in the Reagan administration uh, when the first Soviet pipelines were laid and connected to Germany. Um, that concern has come roaring back uh, in, in not only in the United States but in other NATO capitals as well. It would be foolish, I think, for anyone to assume that the Russian government would not try to use energy dependence uh, as a political weapon. Uh, I think any Russian government, uh, particularly a government led by essentially President for Life Vladimir Putin, uh, would be averse to using that as a political weapon. I, I would be astounded if that was not considered. Will it happen? That's a slightly different question. Uh, but I think the threat of Russian energy coercion is real. Now, the flip side of that is uh, Germany would become Russia's uh, almost, I, I think, Russia's single biggest gas buyer. Um, and if one looks at it from that perspective, then there might be an interesting calculation to be made in Moscow uh, that they don't want to hurt their best customer. So um, if we presume for the sake of argument that the pipeline is completed and it's very nearly done, um, then uh, it, it's going to be very interesting to watch which of those two economic, uh, not partners, but uh, those, those two, uh, Germany and, and Russia, how they react and, and, and act uh, regarding both buying natural gas and delivering it. Um, it should, I think, that the German government has soured on Vladimir Putin and Russia uh, to a, a significant degree over the Navalny poisoning, uh, over the invasion of Ukraine, um, uh, over the, the uh, deployment of Russian intermediate range nuclear missiles in the Kaliningrad uh, Oblast and so on. Um, there has been a distinct cooling of relations between Berlin and Moscow uh, in the last several years. Whether that will remain the case, of course, I cannot say, uh, but it is significant uh, in its degree of uh, tamping down in terms of the emotional level. Uh, the two countries, I think, have to deal with each other. They have no choice but to do so. Um, and we should not, I think, in the United States assume that they will not deal with one another. They have to. Uh, but it becomes a balancing act then for Germany, uh, both as regards the EU and as regards NATO. Okay, thank you. Um, our next question is from Greg Giles, and that question is, on Friday, the German defense minister gave a very explicit endorsement of German nuclear sharing. She also signaled that the German government needs to speak more publicly about the need for nuclear deterrence. Have you seen a greater willingness to talk about nuclear sharing and how this new openness might affect the 2021 election? 
um, I had noted that uh, particular policy, although I don't know, I, I've not seen the text of what was what was said. Uh, what I have been struck by is the fact that at least, uh, unless the announcement of last week changes that, uh, changes things, I have been struck by the fact that in uh, among the major German political parties uh, across the spectrum, uh, in the run-up to what we would call the run-up to their election next year, there has been very little public discussion that I have seen um, of nuclear sharing on Germany's part. Uh, as a as a uh, an, an element in the campaign arguments that they are having, uh, I have seen very little discussion of that at a party political level. Uh, it has certainly arisen from time to time in other places, uh, but as so uh, insofar as German political parties are concerned, I've seen very very little public indication that it's going to be a campaign issue. Now again, could that change? And the answer is yes. Um, uh, unlike the Democratic and Republican parties here, as a general rule, a German political party rather closer attention to their uh, their party programs, what we would call a party platform, uh, than is the case in this country. Uh, they do not always adhere uh, to the letter of their party programs, but they tend to pay historically rather closer attention to their party programs. And I think we'll see a much clearer indication as party programs begin to be developed for the, the national election uh, as to where the various parties might stand officially on the matter of nuclear sharing. I would certainly presume that the CDU and the CSU, um, uh, the two large conservative parties in Germany, will continue uh, to support not only NATO nuclear policy generally, but nuclear sharing more specifically. Um, I'm not quite so sure about the Social Democratic Party uh, since several of its major uh, uh, figures in the last two or three years have raised the very issue of Germany abandoning nuclear sharing. Um, the Social Democratic Party is at a historically low point at this moment um, and that particular uh, set of comments made by a number of individuals in the Social Democratic Party might itself be a stalking horse uh, to generate popular support for the party in the run-up to the national election in the fall. Um, but as of today, at least, uh, the, so the uh, Social Democratic Party, uh, which is in the governing coalition at the national level, uh, continues to support the, the nuclear sharing mission. So I, I would suggest watch for the development of party political programs uh, in the run-up to the fall election uh, and see if they are changed or altered in any way not because every German political party never deviates from their program, but because historically, at least, German political parties have paid rather greater attention to adhering to their program than is the case here in this country. Um, and I'm glad that issue was brought up about that announcement from last week, actually. So I hope that answers the question. I believe it does. Thank you, Dr. Durando. Uh, so our next question is from Dr. Mark Kyrus uh, from USDRATCOM. And the question is, given Germany's enormous GDP, what do you see as Germany's path to achieving the NATO-required 2% defense spending without being seen as remilitarization? And how did the parties divide over this requirement? Um, that 2% uh, uh, official uh, target at a, at a practical level, I think, ultimately is a matter of political will. 
um, the German economy, uh, I, I'm not an economist, uh, but the German economy, I am convinced, based on what I do know about it, uh, is capable of meeting that 2% goal. Um, the question, I think, then becomes for any political party, which then really begins to strive to meet that goal, um, how unpopular will that become? Uh, this, I think, will be a very important issue. This 2% goal is going to become a very important issue um, as a result of whoever wins this national election in the fall of next year in Germany. If we have, for example, a governing coalition made up of the CDU-CSU, uh, the black seats on the graph that we saw, and the Green Party, uh, which is a theoretical mathematical possibility, have a, have a black-green coalition, it would be called, uh, then I think uh, an actual drive to actually hitting the target of 2% is going to be much more problematic. Um, ultimately, I think, uh, the realization of that 2% goal, I think, depends ultimately on what the, the color combination, if you will, of the governing national coalition is as of the national election next fall. Uh, I, can't, I can't imagine that there would be significant movement toward that 2% goal between now and, and August of next year. Uh, whatever the German government might say officially about its remaining a, uh, an official target. Um, it is certainly the case uh, that the left party, it is certainly the case that elements of the Green Party, uh, it is certainly the case, uh, perhaps, um, uh, even of the AA, uh, that there would be opposition to meeting that goal um, to the extent that any 2% uh, objective um, is seen to put uh, Germany any further under the thumb from the view of those party supporters of the United States. Um, if one looks at the party uh, programs, the current party programs of both the AFD on the right and the, and the left party on the left, um, you can see that they are both um, uh, anti-NATO, though for different reasons. Uh, they're anti-NATO, uh, to be sure. And the left party, of course, is anti-nuclear weapons, to be sure. Uh, the AFD tends to be anti-NATO and, uh, in my estimation, pro-Russian. Um, it tends to be anti-NATO, not because it's anti-military, but because NATO is seen to be by the AFD a tool of the United States. Um, so there would be a great deal of popular uh, discussion, shall we say, uh, about any renewed attempt actually to hit that 2% target. Uh, that's a great question. I hope I've answered it. All right, thank you, Dr. Durando. Um, our next question is from George Vogan. And the question is, if a gray rhino or a black swan further erodes relations and defaulting value of deterrence between the U.S. and Germany, uh, or likewise Europe and NATO, what are your opinions on the actions that we might see Russia or China to gain, uh, might take to gain advantage? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Um, uh, th let me say a word about China first. Uh, China is already... Um, the EU's uh, second largest trading partner uh, after the United States. Uh, and China, for Germany specifically, uh, is Germany's second 
or first, I can't remember, first or second largest bilateral trading partner. Uh, all of you, I'm sure, are absolutely clearly aware um, that China is pushing very aggressively uh, in terms of the One Belt, One Road initiative, uh, the sort of gigantic Eurasian continent spanning infrastructure project um, to sort of uh, uh, push its way, if you will, uh, into Europe, uh, where where that Chinese economic influence goes, I would certainly presume Chinese political influence will follow. Um, that is not anything historically new either. Um, the European uh, powers, all of them, the European countries and Germany, of course, as well, uh, have a vested economic interest in trying not to offend Chinese sensibilities, purely for economic reasons. Um, at the same time, some of them are trying to balance the strategic threat which China might play. Uh, the Made in China 2025 program, for example, the One Belt, One Road initiative, Huawei and 5G and all the rest of it. In a, somewhat similarly, um, Russia being immediately next door uh, to the European NATO countries uh, poses, I think, a different sort of challenge uh, for the European NATO states. Uh, and it's not an economic challenge. Uh, it is a East Central European slash Eastern European hegemonic challenge uh, of a more traditional sort. Uh, a challenge made worse by the fact that Russia, and again, this is no secret to anyone on this call, uh, is doing its utmost uh, to destabilize not only Europe, but the European Union as well. Um, it's a different sort of challenge confronting the European NATO countries than the challenge currently posed by China. In the event of a, a, a black swan event, which would lead to uh, any, any genuinely serious disruption of the transatlantic NATO ties, I would, I would presume, based on what I know as of this morning, um, that there would be a, a confused set of voices on the European side of the Atlantic about how to respond, ranging from, on the one hand, um, increased European strategic autonomy uh, as championed, for example, by uh, French President Macron, making uh, the best deal one can. Um, as exemplified by people like Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, or the government of Serbia, for example. Uh, it, 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 that's a, a tremendously important question for which uh, I don't think one can give, uh, anyone can give uh, a, a firm answer at this time. But we ignore that very question that was asked at our peril, I think, as do the Europeans. They ignore it at their own peril. I wish I could give a more definitive answer, but I, I, I don't know that there is one at this moment. No worries. Thank you. Our next question is from Steve Schenkel from the Naval War College. And that question is, can you comment on how Germany sees an extended deterrence benefit from Europe's other nuclear powers, like the UK and France outside of the US's nucle uh, nuclear forces? Yes. And do Germans really see nukes as a key to security? 
uh, I'm, I'm sorry, did they see nukes as a key to security? Correct. Right. Um, th there was this uh, very interesting uh, discussion in Germany about two years ago, I guess, uh, that emanated from one of the uh, Bundeswehr academies, uh, from a, a, a couple of their staff members. And I, I, I fear I don't recall the article specifically uh, as I'm speaking to you. Um, about whether Germany should develop now its own uh, nuclear weapons capability in light of the fact that um, United States could no longer, in their view, be counted upon uh, to provide nuclear security for Germany. Uh, that particular article set off a tremendous discussion on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, which is sort of faded from view now, this discussion. Um, and part of the rationale for the piece when it was published was, well, if we can't count on the United States, we, Germany, to provide nuclear, reliable, assured nuclear protection, then where else do we go for that? Um, and the question then became, well, will the British and the French, would the British and the French be willing to extend their nuclear umbrella over us, Germany, uh, in the event that we, Germany, and other European NATO members could no longer rely effectively on the United States. Um, more recently, uh, as I said a moment ago, a number of very powerful and important uh, members of the SPD uh, party began to say, well, no, let's not, let's, let us not only not develop a German nuclear capability, uh, let us get rid of the nuclear sharing mission. Uh, and that's the most recent sort of pendular counterpoint to the uh, the German uh, nuclear sharing argument. There has, I've certainly seen some, uh, again, this is all open source, obviously. I've, I've seen some discussion uh, in the British and the French press about the theoretical possibility of an extension of an Anglo-French guarantee, nuclear guarantee uh, to Germany and other NATO states. Um, I have no idea uh, what is being said about that, if anything, behind closed doors as of today. The, the other part of that question having to do with whether or not uh, Germany sees nuclear uh, weapons uh, as an effective defense, uh, this is a question that goes, uh, this question goes right back uh, to the 1950s, uh, never gone away. Uh, uh, whether in the Federal Republic of Germany before reunification nor after reunification. Um, this question is more frequently to be found at the, at the level of the grassroots rather than in the political establishment in Germany. Um, but this is a very, very old question um, and it is still being asked. Um, the fact that it is still being asked uh, indicates, of course, that there are significant numbers of people in Germany who do not think it makes uh, th th it is not realistic uh, to rely on a nuclear capability uh, to defend Germany from external threats. Uh, the question is an old one uh, and I can only assure the questioner that this question is it's been around since the 1950s. Okay, thank you Dr. Durando. Um, so for our audiences, um, information. We are going to be going uh, 15 extra minutes over for today's Q&A um, since Dr. Durando has graciously granted us more time to address the remaining questions. Um, so continuing with the Q&A, 
Our next question is, what is your take on French President Macron's musing of possibly extending France's nuclear umbrella to the rest of the EU, including Germany? Uh, it, that goes back to the question that was just asked. I find that very interesting um, because historically um, the government of France, uh, since the development of the French nuclear arsenal in the early 1960s, uh, has always striven to be as independently minded as it can be. Um, first, of course, in part by sort of uh, essentially withdrawing from NATO and then even after essentially rejoining NATO. Um, uh, the earlier events, of course, having occurred during the presidency of President de Gaulle. Um, this, uh, uh, this putative offer on the part of President Macron, um, I find in keeping with uh, the traditional uh, uh, French view of French military autonomy, nuclear autonomy, um, I have seen it dismissed in some uh, uh, German and French media as having been uh, a means, the, the statements by President Macron being dismissed as having been a means for him to um, bolster his own credentials uh, as the sort of coming future leader of the German-French tandem once Brexit finally happens, as it, I guess, is still supposed to happen on the 1st of January 2021. Um, this German-French tandem will certainly remain, um, I think, as the guiding tandem, not only within the EU, but now among, uh, among European NATO members as well. Um, and as I say, some German and French media have dismissed President Macron's statements in this respect as having been a way to sort of boost it. Uh, he confronts an election of his own uh, next year as well, as I recall. Um, and he's been very verbally assertive in all sorts of ways, not only as regards this issue, uh, but as regards uh, French support for Greece in the Eastern Mediterranean, in Greece's dust up with Turkey, um, uh, and so on. So uh, this has, th this French offer, uh, this putative French offer has both very important domestic um, uh, calculations, I think, as well as the possibility of an international assertion within the EU of, of the French uh, position relative to the other members of the EU. All right, thank you. Uh, so our next question is from Larry at Stratcom. And the question is, given the situation in Turkey, the nuclear sh another nuclear sharing country, or sorry, let me restart that. Given the situation in Turkey, another nuclear sharing country, do you think that events will influence political events in Germany with respect to these weapons? And what um, would be the impact to U.S. deterrence? Yes, yes, yes. This is um, a question that I, I think an awful lot about, specifically this question about um, the uh, nuclear weapons which are stationed in Turkey and uh, in the event of their, with, their withdrawal, and I have no idea whether that's going to happen. Um, what effect that would have if there would be a knock-on effect uh, in other nuclear-sharing European NATO states, particularly in Germany. Um, the situation in Turkey as regards the rest of the NATO members, I find uh, deeply troubling, um, not least insofar as very recent events uh, are concerned. Uh, following the uh, the murder of the French school teacher uh, 
um, tremendous open political fight has developed between President Macron and President Erdogan of Turkey. Uh, over the weekend, President Erdogan literally called Macron and other EU and NATO leaders. He openly called them fascists and um, uh, preparers of national socialism. This is astonishing, this level of, of, of verbal attack by one, it seems to me astonishing, by one NATO head of state against another NATO head of state specifically and others by extension. Um, there are certainly people on this call who know the situation uh, regarding American nuclear weapons in Turkey than I do. Um, but viewing that particular factor from the outside, uh, I would certainly say that I hope they are, uh, th th that these uh, weapons are, are being uh, excruciatingly closely monitored. Uh, I, I am deeply troubled as an, as an historian of nuclear deterrence uh, about the fate of these particular weapons. Um, were they to be withdrawn from Turkey for whatever reason, I would certainly expect there to be uh, a renewed call at the popular level in Germany and among certain political parties, particularly the left party and the Greens, for their removal from Germany as well, especially in light of the fact that leading members of the SPD have already, have already done that, made such a call uh, earlier this year and last year as well. Um, I, would, I would fully expect that. That's a terrifically good question. Well, thank you for addressing it. Um, so our next question is, as you say that Germany supports decoupling from the US, how do you interpret Germany's support to basing, um, to basing versus carrying out a NATO nuclear mission? Do you see their funding support different between basing and the ability to support the actual DCA mission? Um, that's also a very good question. I, I would refer back again to this um, uh, article that was published in the September issue of the uh, Bundeswehr Journal. Uh, that indicated that there would be this $200 million investment at, at Bichel. The article, of course, did not say uh, to what extent um, those monies which would be invested at Bichel would be used for the purpose of uh, refurbishing the uh, nuclear weapon storage infrastructure at the base. Uh, obviously, such a journal article would not say that. Uh, this was also reported in a, a, a major regional paper uh, uh, called the Rhein-Neckar Zeitung, um, uh, the same investment. I have not seen this uh, any announcement of this investment anywhere else except in the Bundeswehr Journal and in the related article in the Rhein-Neckar um, As a matter of sort of fiscal policy, um, as far as I can determine, uh, Germans don't object to money being spent on basing infrastructure, uh, certainly for their own forces, uh, nor indeed for American forces. Um, there has been great consternation in Germany about the announcement that American forces would be withdrawn from Germany, uh, whether that will happen and how long it would take and all those sorts of things, I don't know. Um, but I would note that $190 million is scheduled to be spent at the joint training area at Grafenbeer, um in uh, southeastern Germany. 
which is a very, very large uh, joint training area that has been used by the U.S. Army and, and the German Army and other NATO forces for decades. And that was just announced the other day as well. So it, it seems somewhat incongruous to me uh, it, from a historical perspective uh, to see announcements being made of very significant uh, infrastructural investment at the same time that there there is talk of, uh, and widespread talk in Germany, of uh, reducing the nuclear sharing mission and American forces being withdrawn from Germany, not necessarily to be brought back home, but you know, to be forward deployed in Poland and things of that nature. Um, I, I don't see any significant domestic opposition to, to straightforward investment in military basing infrastructure. Um, I do see uh, fairly frequent questions being raised about how much of that money should be spent on the nuclear sharing mission for Germany uh, for all of the reasons that we've been talking about. But again, I would note this article in, in the Bundeswehr Journal about this $200 million, uh, 200 million euro uh, investment at Pisa. Uh, that kind of money is a significant chunk of change from a German budgetary point of view. Um, and I find it interesting that it's being invested at that specific base, uh, because that's the only base where a German DCA air, uh, uh, dual capable aircraft are based. Okay, thank you. Uh, our next question is from Stephen Olette at IDA, and the question is, is the indication of German withdrawal from nuclear sharing with the U.S. that Germany would pursue its own nuclear capability and nuclear weapons stockpile? Uh, the short answer to the question, I think, would, would be probably not. Um, but uh, I would add in a sort of uh, embarrassed way uh, that in uh, 20, let's see, when was this? Uh, right after I began teaching uh, at uh, the university, I was asked before a huge audience uh, whether or not I thought the Berlin Wall would come down in my lifetime. Um, and I very confidently said no. Uh, and 18 months later, the wall was gone, and shortly thereafter, Germany was reunited. So as a matter of policy, I never say never anymore. My immediate reaction to the question would be to say probably not. Uh, there would probably not be a development of a German nuclear capability, military sort. But I think nothing can be ruled out given the very, uh, uh, the, the intensely unsettled uh, state of international affairs, not only in Europe, but here in the United States and in the Indo-Pacific and elsewhere. I think nothing could be ruled out. But I would say probably not, which means, of course, they'll build one. Okay, thank you, Dr. Durando. Um, so it looks like this will be the last question that we have a chance to address. So if anyone um, has questions remaining, please feel free to um, send me them via email. Uh, so our last question is, how might the end of New START impact U.S.-German relations and German-NATO cooperation for nuclear sharing in Germany's DCA mission? That's a great question as well. Uh, again, I have no idea what's going to happen with New START. Um, if one assumes for the sake of the argument that it goes away, there will be, I, I, I would expect, uh, I cannot say that there will be, I would expect uh, a great uh, deal of consternation in Germany um, across the political spectrum 
officially and at the popular level as well, precisely because in the event of very, very large numbers of persons in Germany, both at, in, at the grassroots level and in the government, um, the apprehension is very real that new starts going away would lead to an uncontrolled arms race, uh, at least a uncontrolled three-way arms race uh, among the United States, uh, Russia, and China. I, I can well imagine, given the historical record, I can well imagine uh, such public uh, consternation manifesting itself at the level of the streets I can well imagine such consternation um, generating pressure, popular pressure from below on German political parties um, uh, in, a, in, in a fit of that consternation and distress to urge Germany to abandon the nuclear sharing mission so as to try to avoid being caught up in what would be perceived to be an unrestrained nuclear arms race. Whether such an abandonment would occur, I, I simply don't know. But I would I would certainly expect there to be very very great public discontent and dis uh, and uh, 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 consternation uh, about the demise of the New Start Treaty. Uh, and I can imagine that it might lead to significant pressure on German political parties to abandon the nuclear sharing mission, so as to say be able to say we're not going to be involved. That raises, however, the question, you know, to what extent uh, Germany's uh, role in NATO could still be taken seriously as well. I, I know that the nuclear planning group, of course, includes, you know, all the members of NATO, whether they're in the sharing program or not. Uh, and that was not always the case. Um, part of the argument for the nuclear sharing agreement in Germany is that it gives Germany a, a, a bigger seat at the, at the nuclear planning group table by being willing to share that burden of nuclear sharing. The counter argument among those who want to get rid of nuclear sharing in Germany is, well, even if we got rid of our nuclear sharing mission, we'd still, by virtue of our NATO membership, have a role in the nuclear planning group's discussions. Uh, it is my understanding that that's technically true, uh, but the counter argument on the part of the governing parties has always been, well, our seat is much bigger at that table if we are willing to assume that mission. Um, but watch what happens with New Start. I have no idea what's going to happen to it. But if it goes away, there will be some sort of, I think, some sort of very, very strenuous public reaction in Germany. All right. Thank you, Dr. Durando. Um, so with that, yeah. So with that, um, we are going to conclude today's Microsoft Teams session. Uh, but I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in today. And thank you, Dr. Durando, for thank taking you all. the time to, to present today. All right, have a good one, everyone.